Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. David Cumby is actually our lead pastor, but he's away on vacation, but traveling back today, so he should be back uh, this time next week. So we look forward to his return. Uh, pray for him and his family as they are traveling. Um, uh, you may have noticed that this is going to be a different kind of service. It's what we're calling a family service, which means that our kids are actually going to stay in here with us today. So if you are from kindergarten up, we actually have some activity bags for you, and Miss Sarah and Mr. Ryan are going to uh, bring those around to you. So if you're a kindergarten up, uh, you know, but maybe lower than 18, uh, just raise your hand, uh, and you can have an activity bag. Unless, unless it just gets really boring, then you can, by all means, color on. Okay, so they're going to be passing those out. Um, uh, if you're new here, thanks so much for coming. Uh, I would love to meet you after the service. We have a little contact table right outside. We have a little gift we'd love to give you, so please stop by, let us shake hands, and get to know one another. Uh, This summer, uh, if you've been following along with us, we have been looking at a number of encounters that Jesus had with different individuals, both in the Gospels and, as we learned two weeks ago, in the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to continue that study of these encounters by looking at one of the most famous encounters Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus that includes possibly one of the most famous verses ever written, at least for evangelicals, John 3.16, which means that this morning we're going to be talking about the gospel. Now, for a lot of us, this word gospel is a very familiar term, uh, maybe even too familiar. If you've grown up in the South, you've probably heard that this, is, this word comes from a Greek word that means good news. So when we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. But what exactly is the good news? If you had to explain it to somebody in five minutes, or on an Uber drive to the airport, what would you say? What story would you read to them from the Bible, or what passage of Scripture would you send them to go and read? Even more difficult, if the gospel really is good news, how would you begin to explain to them the difference it has made in your life? These are all really important questions, but they can also be really difficult Thankfully, these are the questions that our encounter with Jesus Nicodemus are all about. And so what we're going to do this morning is unpack this encounter between them to see what we can learn both about the gospel in itself and also about what kind of difference it can make in your life. So let's dive in. What is the gospel? As we mentioned, the word gospel means good news. But if the gospel is good news, what does that mean? must be some bad news lurking around somewhere that makes the gospel truly good. In other words, to understand the good news, we need to first understand the bad news. And this is where Nicodemus comes running in. Unwittingly, Nicodemus is the bearer of bad news in our gospel story. Look again with me at the first two verses of chapter 3. John tells us that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, right off the bat, there are three things we need or should notice about Nicodemus. The first is that John tells us he was a Pharisee. Now, most of us probably don't have a very high view of anyone called a Pharisee. But the truth is, not all Pharisees were bad. There were some good Pharisees, and there were some bad Pharisees. There were some Pharisees who wanted to follow Jesus, and there were some Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. But at this point, we don't know anything else about Nicodemus, and therefore we can only conclude about him what we can conclude about all Pharisees at this time. Namely, that they were really passionate about obeying God and obeying his word. In fact, Pharisees like Nicodemus took God's word so seriously that most of them had the entire Old Testament memorized word for word which means at the very least that Nicodemus must have been a really good and moral person who is also very intelligent. You might even say brilliant with a capital B. Okay, the second thing John wants us to notice about Nicodemus is that he was a ruler of the Jews. This probably implied that Nicodemus had a lot of money, and as we're going to see, he absolutely did. But more than that, it also meant that Nicodemus had influence with all the people. You see, in ancient Israel, they were a society built on hierarchies. At the top of this hierarchy, you had the ruling class known as the Sadducees. And below them, you had everyone else, the peasants, which constituted the vast majority of the people. But right in between them, you had the Pharisees. And here's the thing about being right in the middle, by being a Pharisee. By being right in the middle, they held no official power, but they were deeply connected with those who did. And yet, because of their piety, they commanded great respect with everyone who did not. So they were connected with everyone who had power and the command of respect of everyone who did not. In other words, we might say that Pharisees like Nicodemus were what were, were first century influencers. And to have their endorsement really meant something, especially if you were the Messiah. Which brings us to the third thing we should notice about Nicodemus. John tells us that Nicodemus actually believed that Jesus had come from God. In other words, he's one of the good Pharisees. He's for Jesus, not against him. He's seen the signs Jesus is doing, and he thinks he might be the long-awaited Messiah who's coming to set God's people free and deliver them from evil and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And of course... He was right. This is exactly who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So Nicodemus is smart, he's moral, he's influential, and he believes in Jesus. He's exactly the kind of person you want on your team if you are the Messiah and ready to start a revolution, which is why Jesus says what? Nicodemus, my boy, we're going to do great things. No. He says, it's not enough. It's not enough that you're good, smart, and faithful. You still need to be born again. You need to be born again because if you are not, you can never enter the kingdom of God. 
and for reasons we don't have time to unpack, Nicodemus just doesn't understand. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we probably don't either. Why is it not enough to love God and be a good person? If, it's not, if, if, if Nicodemus isn't good enough, what hope is there for us? And this question, and to this question, Jesus offers one of the most cryptic but most important answers in the entire New Testament. Look again with me at verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, this response is cryptic, but it's also really important. In fact, everything about the good news hinges upon us understanding this reference. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, in this response, Jesus is referring to the brief story from the Old Testament book of Numbers that we heard Brett read just a few moments ago. It's a wild story about the Israelites wandering through the desert who at one point rebel against God and were plagued by poisonous snakes. As a result, many were dying. But out of God's mercy, he instructed Moses to fashion a bronze serpent and to lift it up on a pole so that whenever an Israelite was bitten by a snake, they could lift their eyes to the bronze serpent and be healed. Again, it's a crazy story. Probably not the one to read to your kids right before they go to bed. But remember, Nicodemus is smart. He's got the whole Old Testament memorized word for word. He knows exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says these words. And more importantly, now he understands why he must be born again. It's because he's dying. Nicodemus is dying. Like the snake-bitten Israelites, Jesus is saying that, saying that Nicodemus also has venom in his veins, the venom of sin. And apart from a miracle, he too is going to die, and he will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, the million-dollar question is this. What is this venom and where the heck did it come from? There's a couple ways we can answer this question, but I want to take us back to the beginning of the story, all the way back to Adam and Eve. In particular, chapter 3 of Genesis that recounts to us the fall. Do you remember what happened when, the, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and ate from the forbidden tree? Two things entered the world. Sin and death. Sin and death. And when it did, what happened to Adam and Eve? They were exiled from the garden. Exiled from God's presence, apart from the tree of life. Which is to say, effectively, they were given a sentence of death. But here's the rub. Not just Adam and Eve, but Nicodemus too. And not just Nicodemus, but us too. For since then, 
every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve that has ever lived has been born where? East of Eden. East of God's presence, east of the tree of life. And no matter what we do, because we've all been born into death, we are going to die. And so as it turns out, the venom in Nicodemus' veins is the same venom that is in ours. It's called sin, and it comes from being a member of the human race, from being a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. And this is what the church has historically called the doctrine of original sin. And in the words of G.K. Chesterton, it's the most empirically verifiable doctrine in all of Christianity— because everyone who has ever lived and ever will is going to die. And that is bad news. It's not entirely our fault. We're not the original in this original sin equation, but it is our problem. And in the words of Whiston Auden, we who must die demand a miracle which, as it turns out, is what the good news is all about. Jesus is our miracle. Hear these words again from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's such a powerful verse, but it's also just so darn familiar. What does it mean that he loved us enough to give us his only son? The closest I can come to answering that question is uh, to recall a story that I uh, learned from a friend of mine when I was in college. You see, when I was in college, I became really close to this family that had three kids, two boys and a little girl, Lucy, Sam, and Kyle. But one day, tragedy struck. The little girl, Lucy, who must have been only about eight years old at the time, experienced serious organ failure in both kidneys. And almost overnight, she became in demand for a kidney transplant if she was going to live. As expected, the family was devastated. This was very serious, and the odds were slim. But together they prayed and they searched for a kidney, a kidney donor who would maybe be a match for their precious daughter. Naturally, they each volunteered to test and see if they might be the match. No one questioned if this was too much to ask. No price was too high to pay. This was their beloved daughter and sister. And so the results came back, and what they discovered was that the youngest brother, about 10 years old, was not a match. But his older brother, Kyle, was. And everybody was thrilled. Everybody was overjoyed. Their little sister was going to live. Everybody was overjoyed, except for Sam, the little brother, the one right in between, the 10-year-old. You see, Sam was devastated. He was grateful that his little sister was going to live, but completely devastated that his older brother was going to have to die. 
You see, what Sam didn't understand was that his older brother actually had two kidneys, not just one. And that he was going to be able to give one of those to his sister without having to sacrifice his own life. You can imagine how excited little Sam was when he heard this. God had heard their prayers. His sister was going to live, and so was his big brother. It's a sweet story, but it's not the most significant part of it. You see, when that little boy, Sam, walked into, that, walked into the hospital to be tested for uh, a kidney match that morning, he did so believing that he only had one kidney, too. And that if he were a match, he could save his sister, but only at the expense of his own life. And he did it anyway. Ten years old without objection, without question, or any concern for his own well-being, he did it anyway. And here's why. Because he loved his, so, his sister so much, he was willing to trade places with her. You might even say that Sam loved Lucy so much that he was willing to give her his one and only kidney so that if he was a match she might not die, but live. And what John is trying to tell us in this all too familiar passage is that God loves us just the same. God loves you like Sam loves Lucy. But here's the difference. God didn't have two kidneys. God didn't have two sons. God didn't have two ways of saving you and me. He only had one. And when John says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he, mean, he means that he gave his only son to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness so that all who look to him can be healed and live. Jesus is our miracle. Jesus is our bronze serpent in the wilderness. Jesus is the good news. We who must die can live. But if you don't believe me, you should just ask Nicodemus yourself. You see, after Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus in chapter 3, he disappears from the narrative until much later in chapter 19. This time at the crucifixion, of Jesus. But this time, something is different. This time, John makes certain to point out that Nicodemus isn't coming by night under the cloak of darkness in secret. He's coming in the middle of the day. He comes to him after he has suffered public humiliation and execution to do something that most of his disciples were too scared to do, to give Jesus a proper Jewish burial. There are two reasons why this is significant. First, in the first century, there were dozens of would-be messiahs crucified on Roman crosses. The cross was Rome's way of dealing with rebel movements that sought to overthrow their rule. And so what they did was they would crucify the leader along a roadside, not high up in the air and not clothed, but eye level and naked so that everybody walking into Rome would see this is what happens if you seek to overthrow Rome. 
And when they were done with the leader of the revolt, they would often round up his followers and execute them too. This is why the disciples are nowhere to be found. This happened to Jesus, and I'm next. So when Nicodemus shows up to give Jesus a proper Jewish burial, he's doing so not only at the risk of his own reputation for associating with these Jews. More importantly, he's doing so at the risk of his own life. Second, in chapter 19, John tells us that Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, to adorn Jesus' crucified body before laying it in the tomb. Now, we don't trade in these currencies today, but 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe was an immense value. In today's dollars, it's about $200,000. Somebody should have told Nicodemus he wasn't going to be there that long. (laughs) You should have rented the place, not bought it. Okay. The conclusion that John is leading us to draw is that something drastic has clearly taken place in Nicodemus' life. And the question we're supposed to ask is what? What happened to Nicodemus? And the only answer that makes sense comes from all the way back in chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Nicodemus saw the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and was healed. And because of that, he wasn't afraid of dying anymore. He knew that he would be resurrected. And he wasn't afraid of being poor. His treasure was now in heaven. In a word, he'd seen how much God loved him on the cross And it made him willing to sacrifice everything he had ever held dear for the one who sacrificed everything for him. And that's the kind of difference the gospel can make in your life. So where does that leave us? Well, if you're a skeptic like Nicodemus, look to Jesus on the cross and find the faith he found to believe. If you're struggling with sin and you doubt whether or not you can ever be changed, look to Jesus upon the cross and find the power you need to be healed. If your marriage is on the rocks and it too is going to die, Look to Jesus upon the cross and see the love of God poured out for you. And it will fill your heart with so much love that it will be all you can do not to love your spouse and your marriage too will live. He was lifted up for your healing. Let us look to him and live. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for loving us enough to trade places with us. You loved us not as we were, but right where we are, and too much to leave us as we were, and for this we are grateful. We ask now that you would lift up our eyes to behold 
Jesus enthroned upon the cross. So that those of us who struggle with sin or shame or feelings of uh, loneliness or despair may see your great love for us poured out for us and see you upon the cross and be healed. And Lord, we pray especially for anyone who has never trusted in Christ for their salvation, that you would give them the courage of Nicodemus to come to you by day or by night and to behold your glory, witness your love, and come to know life in your name. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for your glory, our joy, and the life of the world. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.